from 2 Peter chapter 1. As Andy mentioned, this is the first of a three-part series uh, on the doctrine of Scripture. And uh, tonight we're looking at the authority of Scripture. So what God says cannot be ignored. Uh, Next time round, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the clarity of Scripture. What God says should not be confused. And then, uh, again, I think either a week or two weeks after that, again, we are looking at the sufficiency of Scripture. What God's what God says tells us all we need to know. So do pray for us as we think through these things. These are uh, some very important uh, messages for the church. Um, but pray for us as preachers, because actually the, the subjects are colossal. <laughs> so uh, this has been a hard week, very hard week. Um, but uh, we are uh, eager to serve one another well in our understanding of the scripture, what it is and why we should obey it. Um, There's a journalist from New York called A.J. Jacobs who wrote a book called The Year of Living Biblically. And it's basically an account of Jacob's uh, attempt to follow every rule of the Bible as literally as possible for one entire year. So he went out to a shop, bought a Bible, read it cover to cover in about four weeks and in true journalistic style jotted down as much as he could in terms of, okay, here's a command, here's an instruction that is to be obeyed or adhered to. I'm going to write these things down and try and put these things into practice. For example, uh, because Leviticus says men should leave the edges of their beards unshaven, he grew a rather ZZ Top-like beard, quite long. Uh, Possibly his most outlandish activity was his attempts to stone adulterers, where he would try on the New York streets to fling little pebbles at passers-by. He assumed that most people in New York were, in fact... Adulterers. <laughs> Needless to say, even by the hilarity that that brings out, the book is a gimmick. Uh, he's not taking the Bible seriously at all. But in his book, interestingly, he does come away with some very important questions that are, that are most relevant for us, questions that arise all the time. And if we're Christians, we are asking, we are asked these questions often concerning the reliability of the Bible, things like that. And certainly, I think, for many of us, um, we've thought through, uh, before coming to faith, what does this book say? Why does it have authority? Why should I do what it says? Can I trust what is written? These are the questions, aren't they? Is the Bible made up? Is it fairy tale? Is it historically reliable? Or is it just the word of a bunch of ancient authors whose works have been kind of gathered together and published in a wonder? Does it actually have the authority to tell us how we should live? I mean, surely science and reason and developments in various academic fields have put a stop to those seemingly outlandish claims of Christians regarding what they argue as being the very word of God. Sadly, Jacobs never actually gets to the bottom of these questions, but I do hope that by the end of this small three-part series on Scripture, we'll have a clearer understanding of the Bible as something that is much more wonderful and dangerous in some sense and radically life-transforming than merely the book of instructions that Jacobs thought it was. And we start with the authority of Scripture. 
And I'm going to read from 2 Peter 1, 12 to 21. And in short, this is where I'm going with this. Number one, what the Bible says, God says. Okay? And number two, what God says cannot be ignored. Okay, so let's read together 2 Peter 1, 12 to 21. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is God's word. We need to understand something of the context here that uh, Peter, to understand what Peter is writing fully. Peter, of course, is one of Jesus' most closest followers, and uh, he's doing two things here in this letter. He's, first of all, answering some critics who are essentially saying that his claims are outlandish and that his claims uh, regarding Christ are made up. Uh, secondly, he's encouraging believers to know that actually the truth about scripture and the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ and in light of that to spur them on towards godly living that they too may be carriers of this gospel that he himself has carried and brought to them so in effect when you when you look into it people are at that time challenging the reliability of Peter's message and claiming that his message is false and as I've mentioned it's not it's not that different nowadays I remember when I was an unbeliever and, and having the Bible first in my hands and being almost scared in some respects wow like I'm thinking through what the Christian faith is here there's an awful lot riding on this how can I know that what's in here is indeed what was written down or all those years ago well, although this is a sermon on the authority of Scripture and not necessarily on the reliability, the historicity, the historical reliability of the text, indulge me a wee second. You can go to Glad You Asked. They'll tell you about it as well. But did you know that we have texts of the Bible, of the Scriptures, that are older than your granny's King James Version? Do you know that? 
they're that old. We've got texts that go back to the 19th and 18th century. We've even got texts that go back to the 17th century that you can see and that you can hold. We have biblical texts from the 16th, 15th, 14th, 13th, 12th, 11th, 10th century. You're thinking, so what? That's still several hundred years after these books were written. Well, we say that the poetics written by Aristotle are great, and we take them as they are, but certainly they were written 1,500 years after Aristotle spoke them so, or wrote them. So what we have is an amount of evidence that's unheard of, actually, in relation to the Bible when dealing with historic texts and documents such as these. From the 9th, 8th, 7th, 6th, 5th, 4th century, we have biblical texts. Do you know how much, how many documents survive from the 4th century? Not many. Not many at all. But did you know that there's a copy of a large, large section of the Bible in the British Museum that dates back to 330 AD? In the 3rd century and the 2nd century... We have texts and portions of texts available. Now, do you know when we think the latest New Testament books were written? About 130 AD. Uh, uh, Sorry, they were written 85 AD. And do you know when the earliest copy of the New Testament dates to? Around 130 AD. That's hardly any time at all in historical sense. Did you know that we have 6,000 books, parchments, or fragments of the scriptures that we can look back to? That's a colossal amount of history. That's a huge number of documents. And you know, if you know anyone who has studied classics at university, I was, uh, there was a professor of classics who came to the, the, the church up in St. Andrews and Wow, this was, this was unheard of. Theologians or others who had an issue with the theological claims of the Bible would certainly denigrate it and pass it off. But those who were interested in the classics, those who were interested in the historicity of certain documents and looking back to that ancient Near Eastern history, well, they would tell you this is the best amount of evidence that you could ever see. And that we should indeed pay attention to it. I say that. Thank you for your indulge, allowing me to in, in, indulge myself in that. We have essentially what was written. Is the claim I want to make. We have outstanding reason to believe that what we have is an accurate copy. Even here of Peter's letter. The question is what does he say and why should we believe it? Well the first thing Peter says in paraphrase. What the Bible says God says, that's number one. These words are the words of men, okay? But they are not made up. They're not made up. Verse 16 says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And Peter goes on essentially to defend his credibility as an eyewitness. Witness, just as witnesses do in our own law courts. I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He says, we heard God's voice testify even about the identity of Jesus on the mountain, he mentions. He's talking about the transfiguration. 
uh, in Luke chapter 9. You can read about that. Now, it may be that Peter's critics were saying, well, that's great for you, that you're an eyewitness. You've seen these things. You've heard these things, but we haven't seen with our eyes. We haven't heard with our ears God's voice booming from heaven. And that's exactly what Peter then goes on to address. Verse 19. We have the word of the prophets made more certain. You will do well to pay attention to it. Now, that's not a change of subject. Watch what Peter's doing. He's not telling them to seek a vision of Christ for themselves or to find some way of listening really, really hard to see if they can hear the Father's voice for themselves. No, in response, he's saying, look, these things that I have seen and heard for me only serve to authenticate what I've already read in the Scriptures, the truth that they have already declared. Now, of course, when Peter and the other New Testament writers are referring to the Scriptures, they're talking about the Old Testament. The 51 times out of 53 in the New Testament where the word graphe is used for the Scriptures, they're referring to something that has been written. So, but we know that he's also talking about the New Testament because the two times in the New Testament where the word graphe is used that isn't referring to the Old Testament it's referring to New Testament books as scripture. So in 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul quotes Luke chapter 10 verse 7, calling it scripture. And later in this very letter, Peter mentions Paul's letters, sometimes hard to understand, but again calls them scripture. How can he do that? How can he claim that these men were writing scripture? Well, verse 20 explains for us. You must understand that no scripture came about by a prophet's own interpretation. And notice this. Peter is not denying that the scriptures came through men. No one should deny that. Uh, No, but he goes on to say in verse 21, men spoke. He doesn't deny that at all. But verse 20 claims that these words did not actually have their origin in the will of man. No prophecy of scripture came about by a prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the scripture came through men, no one denies that. Each book reflects something of the personality and the time of its human author. But Peter's claim here is that it wasn't concocted by men. It wasn't devised in their minds. It wasn't dreamt up in their heads at all. No, they spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It teaches us that the Bible has not men for its author, ultimately, but God for its author. These men are just like megaphones in the hands of the speaker as they speak and as they teach and as scripture is written. Sometimes the Lord has demonstrated for this very clearly. So he has dictated essentially to these writers what they should write down. So even we see in the book of Revelation uh, in terms of write this down to the church in Smyrna. You know, there's dictation in there. but, But in general... God worked through these seemingly natural means, through these men who spoke. Nehemiah wrote a first-person account. Paul wrote letters. 
Barak wrote down what Jeremiah prophesied. Mark wrote down what Peter told him, we believe. It's incredible to see. These words are the words of men, but they are not made up. No, these words are the words of God, and they are therefore true. This men speaking as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, this is what we call inspiration. And the idea is not so much that God breathed into the scriptures, but that the scriptures are a result of his breathing out. So we read about that in 2 Timothy 3.16, don't we? All scripture is God breathed. And what we understand through that and through this uh, section into Peter is that God is, is supervising and indeed superintending these human authors not to the negation of their individual uh, personalities or experiences or thought processes or even their vocabulary. But he is controlling what is written. I, I, I like to think of this, to, uh, liken this to some extent uh, to what we're doing when we're trying to teach our children uh, to write. The pen may be in their hands. Uh, but we, I'm sure many of you have done it, we put our hand on them and we show them the shapes that they are to make and help them write something. I think in the same way, though the pen is without question in the hand of the original authors, it's God's guidance and supervision through the Holy Spirit that produces the words that we have in our Bibles. Men spoke, but their words were and still are are God's words to the extent that what scripture says God says what scripture says God says now this is exactly what the Bible claims for itself all the way through there is an inner consistency throughout it's hard to imagine a clearer phrase than what the, than to describe the Bible and the scripture than the quote I already offered from 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is God breathed. It's so clear, so strongly communicates this connection between the God who reveals himself, who speaks. We even see that from the Genesis account of creation. You know, we use spades and cement mixers and all these different kind of things to build and you know, to we use our hands to create. God speaks trees. It's incredible. But it's hard to imagine a better phrase that could more strongly communicate the connection between God and the Bible. All scripture is God breathed. Not just God blessed or God sanctioned. It's not that God was just with the authors and we need to dig deep to try and find out those bits that are of God because it's all mixed in with the things that are the bits that are of men. That would be a very liberal view. Well, if we really believe that God has superintended and supervised this, we must believe every word to be true. Because if these words are God's words, then these words, needless to say, are authoritative you see the authority of the bible doesn't actually reside in the fact that we have all of those texts that are available to us so we can check and cross check and cross check again 
the reliability of the text that we have written down in these different manuscripts. No, that would actually be appealing to reason or to history as the final authority for what we have in our Bibles. Theologically speaking, the authority of the Bible resides primarily in the fact that it has God as its author and that God is the one who is authoritative in every way. How do we know that? Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created. He reigns and rules over his creation. He is the king. He is uh, building for himself a kingdom, moving us forward to a point where there will be a great reversal of the, the sin and decay that we have seen in this world. And the testimony of all those who will worship and praise him and be with him is that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that he holds all authority. And what we're supposed to see in recognizing that is that God's word is an extension of himself, really, in many respects. Not that it's the fourth person of the Trinity. That wouldn't make it Trinity, of course. I don't know what the fourth one is. Um, but in it, we see his identity. In it, we see his character. In it, we discover his purposes, his affections, his power. All of these things just become magnificently clear for us to see. Where without his revelation, without his self-disclosure, we would be dumb. We would not know a thing. But Holy Scripture, the Bible, being God's word, written by men, prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of such infallible quality, of infallible divine authority, in all matters upon which it touches. That means it is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms. It is to be obeyed as God's command in all that it requires and embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. His words will not fall to the ground. His word is not false. His word is true and it is to be believed. And this is the second point. What God says cannot be ignored. If these words are God's words, then these words are authoritative. And if these words are God's words, then God, what God says cannot be ignored. This is why Peter says in verse 19, you hear the heartfelt appeal in there. You would do well to pay attention to it. If what God has said is true, you cannot afford to ignore it. It has far-reaching implications for our lives. And even beyond that, far-reaching implications for what happens beyond death. We understand what it is to obey and submit to authority. Sometimes we're just really not that good at it. I see that in my three-year-old. I see that in my one-year-old, actually, which is more alarming. But we, we know what this is like. Um, I was on a, an airplane going uh, on holiday in November time. And for me, it became crystal clear who holds the authority on an airplane. It's the captain, isn't it? The pilot, the captain. 
And uh, when we were flying to the States last year, um, you know how you, you normally get the, the captain who comes on and says, uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're enjoying your flight. Uh, we're currently flying at an altitude of blah, 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 and those kind of things, okay? Well, that's not what happened this time we were flying through. All I heard was cabin crew abandoned service, and I was like, what? Oh, I have never heard that before. <laughs> um, I, 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 I say, Everybody, please fasten your seatbelts, all those kind of things. I was like, what? We're going down, you know? I was like, going down? I'm going for that intercom. I'm going to tell these people about Jesus, you know? Anyway. See, don't be selfish. Don't go for your seatbelt. Get to that intercom before the stewardess. <laughs> okay. What did they do? They would have been utterly stupid <laughs> to not abandon service and to, to go and sit in their seats. I mean, we hit some pretty rough turbulence. Thankfully, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Um, poor little Will could hardly breathe sitting on my lap. <laughs> and it wasn't as bad, but it would have been silly for them to ignore the authority. I mean, it was a direct command, really, of the person who was in charge on that plane. Now, if we did hit some pretty severe turbulence, I mean, they could have been bouncing all over the place. Who knows? But there is authority in place for a very good reason in every aspect of our lives, really. Whether you're thinking about in schools with teachers or civil authorities in our society, even within a church. Authority is a good thing, but quite often we see it as something that is negative. And that's our problem when we come to the Bible. Because we think what God says can be ignored. And at times, when it doesn't suit our preferences, we don't pay attention to it. And we think, I am certainly ignoring that. Well, we don't get the choice. We're not allowed to pick and choose which bits are infallible and inerrant. And which bits are not. The Bible tells us plainly what is wrong with us. It tells us that we are sinners rebelling against God's authority. We're like kings of our own lives. And he warns us of what lies ahead for those who ignore his commands. But God's word tells us that great, great truth. That God sent his son into the world to keep the whole law to the uttermost in the right way, not in the way that Jacob's was trying to do it. And he succeeded where everyone else failed. He was a man of sinless perfection. And he, Jesus, died on the cross to take away our sin and rose again to life to assure those who put their faith and trust in him that they can be justified before God, reconciled to God, and receive the promise of eternal life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what God's word tells us. Therefore, we cannot ignore it. Do not ignore it tonight, please. If you're lost, it tells you what makes you wise for salvation. If you are ignorant about what life is all about and what the purpose of it is, it tells us what God wants us to know. If we are obstinate and refuse to accept his word, it warns us even of coming judgment. Even as we turn our heels and move away in rebellion from God, it still declares the warnings. Repent. Turn back before it's too late. 
So in short, to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. We need to understand together as a church collectively that to dismiss the authority of the Bible is to consign ourselves to uncertainty, doubt, a hopeless life of feeling our way in the dark. It will be futile and we will waste years. Individually, we need to see that to obey his word is truly to receive eternal life. Those terms are used interchangeably, even by Jesus. To reject his word is to face the full force of his judgment. That's the warning that is there. What should we do then? Well, let me illustrate this for you by way of comparison. We read, Andy read to us earlier from 2 Kings 22 and 23, the life of Josiah. Josiah was king at the time when the word of God was lost and they were in rebellion. They were not doing what they were supposed to do as a people and as a nation. And 2 Kings 22 tells us a story about the day that the scripture was found and brought to the king. And as it was read to him, he became conscious of God's holiness. He became conscious of the extent to which the people had, his people had fallen away and been rebellious. And he heard the promises of blessings for those who keep his commands and judgment for those who don't. And when Josiah heard these things, we heard what he did. He tore his clothes. Verse 11 said that. A sign of deep anguish and real grief. It was a statement really of of sorrow before God and the people. And verse 19 tells us that God was pleased with his response. Essentially saying to him that because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before me when you heard what I had spoken, the Lord then extended to him mercy. And we saw what Josiah did. You know, he treasured the word of the Lord, had it read out to everybody, made sure they felt the full force of it, and called for them to topple their idols, grind them into dust, set them on fire, whatever it took, and to return to the only God, the true and living God, Yahweh himself. It's a great story, a great illustration of what it means to submit yourself to God and to his authority as the word reveals it. But let me tell you about Jehoiakim. He was Josiah's son and became king after Josiah died. Sadly, his, his regard for the word of God just was not like his father's. In Jeremiah 36, we read that God was speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, words that were written down, taken to Jehoiakim, and as the king listened to them being read, his heart was not moved with sorrow at all. In fact, it seemed like it was pretty unmoved. Jeremiah 36, 23 to 24 said, Whenever Jehudai had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them in the fire pot until the entire scroll was burned up in the fire. And the king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear your, their clothes. What a chilling picture of a blatant disregard for God's word. Where Josiah had burned the idols and treasured God's word, 
Jehoiakim burnt God's word and treasured the idols of self and of power, among other things. The contrast couldn't be more clear. Josiah's heart was sorrowful. Jehoiakim's heart was hard. Josiah reformed his life after hearing God's word. Jehoiakim cut it up. He cut it into pieces and destroyed it. Who are you going to choose to be like? Are you going to be like Josiah? Or are you going to be like Jehoiakim? Are you going to hear God's word read to you? Recognizing the authority in the text that it's God who speaks recognizing that he has that you are not autonomous and your life is being lived in rebellion against him and therefore should come under his loving good kind rule or are you going to be like Jehoiakim are you going to just rip it up burn it dismiss it reject it you're going to sit here as much as you like 40 years if you like but you're not really going to do anything are you who are you going to be like Josiah whose life was reformed by God's word who knew that it was God speaking through his word words of life or are you going to be like Jehoiakim We need to understand in relation to the authority of Scripture, to obey his words is to obey him. To ignore his words is to ignore him. He so invested himself, placed himself in and through his word, that our response to his words is fundamentally a response to him. How are you going to respond? There's no in-between. And Jesus has said that he will identify himself with those who listen to God's word. And to them he will bring the same mercy that Josiah knew. So if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. If you humble yourself before the Lord. In acknowledgement of the word that proclaims. The word that holds forth to you. The testimony of his son. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which offers you forgiveness for your sin. Though they may be many. You can trust him and come to him and believe in him and receive from him the same mercy that Josiah knew. Please do not be like Jehoiakim. What God says cannot be ignored. It cannot be cut up. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess and acknowledge him as king. My prayer is that we would all submit to him even tonight, if for the first time, uh, follow his word, these words of life, words that revive the soul, that are sweeter than honey, that make wise the simple, that train our hearts in the way in which we should go, and above all, reveal the glory of our great God and King, Jesus Christ, and the salvation he has brought. Do not Let me show you this. Do not do this. You are not in authority over God's word. 
you should respond like this. His word has authority over you. Shall we pray?